You know, in 2016, there were few news headlines that could steal uh, a headline from the presidential election that year. It seemed like all the news cycles were just focusing on politics throughout that entire year. But exactly two years ago, in January 2016, there was a news story that managed to snatch one of those headlines away. Does anyone have a guess what topic, what theme that news story was about? Anyone have a guess? Anyone? How about this? Money, right? If there's one thing that can distract Americans from politics, it's money, okay? So two years ago, what was happening in the month of January? Well, the Powerball jackpot had the largest record jackpot of all time at $1.57 billion. So if you remember that week a couple years ago, it seemed like every time you turned on a news station or the radio or read a paper, everyone was talking about what they would do if they won $1.57 billion. I mean, just imagine that. What would you do? Well, I could tell you what I would be doing. Next third Monday worship service in February would be in Maui, and we would all be flying all-expense-paid trip, right? Sadly, uh, I didn't get the money. I'm not a billionaire. I apologize to get your hopes up. Right? But that's what all of the focus was on. And everyone was wondering what they would do if they won this jackpot. And, and everyone was essentially saying, you'd have to be crazy not to buy one of those tickets. I mean, you have to be crazy not to want that lifelong financial insurance, knowing that you have no more uh, finance, financial worries or regrets or anything to have your set for the rest of your life. Who wouldn't want that? Right? And it seems like a pretty innocent thing going out and just buying one lottery ticket to get a chance, to buy your chance at getting this $1.57 billion. But you know, it, it's a little more diagnostic uh, about what's going on in our hearts than we might think. Why is that? Well, really, the underlying idea of going out and buying a chance to win that money is really that, you know what, if I had more money, if I had more financial success, if I had more uh, to spend, my life would be better. My life would be happier. I would be more satisfied in my life. You're not going to go out and buy something that you think is going to make your life worse, right? So buying that ticket saying there's something about having more, about having money that's going to bring me more satisfaction. The American dream and the American mindset is saturated with something that we know as materialism. The belief that if I have more stuff, more things, more possessions, my life is going to be greater, bigger, and better. And you know what the sad thing is? It's not just American <laughs> dream. It's not just the American culture. Far too often, it's American Christianity that's also saturated with materialism and idolatry of possessions and money and stuff. If we're being honest tonight, which hopefully we will be, because it's going to be a little bit of a difficult, it's, uh, teaching on finances is always a touchy subject, but if we're going to be honest tonight, I think we could all admit a lot of the times we approach giving and giving to God and giving to God's causes as sometimes an afterthought in our finances rather than the first priority. So tonight, we're going to see from Jesus' own mouth that the American conception of materialism and things and things and money and all that, it does not fit with the life of a faithful follower of Christ. 
materialism isn't compatible with being a devoted disciple. But you know, before we jump into our text tonight, I want us to consider the life of a man named C.T. Studd. Does anybody even know who that is? Has anyone heard that name before, C.T. Studd? Not a lot of people, right? He's not well-remembered, but he was actually a missionary in the late 1800s and early 1900s who made some pretty big waves over in England. You see, at the time, C.T. Studd was, as a young adult, one of the best cricket players the country had ever known. Now, cricket's not that big deal to us, but over there, it's like their version of football, right? So it's a really big deal. This guy is a celebrity. He's an all-star. He's number one cricket player in the country. But not only that, he's also part of the upper class in British society. He's very wealthy. And not only that, he's also a very intelligent young guy who got his degree from one of the Cambridge universities. So by the world standards, he's got it all. He's got money. He's got a good inheritance coming his way. He's got a great education. This guy is set, but one thing was missing in his life, and it's this. He was just a fair-weather fan of Jesus at that time. He hadn't truly devoted his life to Christ, and one night he realized that when he went and listened to the preaching of a man named D.L. Moody. Perhaps you've heard of him. So D.L. Moody is preaching that night, and God gets a hold of Stud's life, and he realizes that to be a faithful follower, he has to put everything on the altar of his life and give control of everything over to God. He had to forsake uh, the, the selfishness he'd been living in. He had to forsake the idols, and he had to start pursuing Christ. He couldn't be lukewarm. Years later, he would write, a line in a poem that's quite famous now recounting this where he said one life to live shall soon be past only what's done for christ will last he realized in that moment he had one life to live and it was very short and he wasn't about to squander it on selfish pursuits so soon after he decided to give up cricket he gave up his career in cricket and being a famous athlete he decided he's going to spend the rest of his life being a missionary on the foreign missions field. And then he also decided that when his inheritance came his way, which would be worth about $4 million now, he would give every last penny away to further God's kingdom and God's gospel. And he put that into action. When he got his inheritance, he gave all $4 million away. Now, imagine that for a moment. Just, first of all, imagine finding out that you're getting $4 million, okay? The excitement that's probably running through your mind. Now, imagine taking that and willingly letting go of it and never spending a penny of it on yourself. That does not make sense in the culture that we live in. If we're being honest, that sounds a little kooky and radical for Christians too, right? That doesn't sound like something we want to do. I'm the first one to admit tonight that I am... I, I praise him, and, and I'm grateful for his example. I admire his example. But I want to I think to myself, I hope God never asked me to do the same thing. It's great to commend him, but it's a lot harder when the question is for us. So we love the quote, one life to live shall soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. But a lot of us want to put a little asterisk on the end that says, that says finance is not included, right? Like we, we get a pass on that. But tonight, we are going to see a young man encountering Jesus 
He wants to be a faithful follower. He says he wants to follow. He says he's ready to give it all. But when Jesus starts talking to him about this, about his finances, about his wallet, about his money, about where his heart truly is, he has to walk away and say, that's too great of a cost for me. Tonight, we're going to see that if we want to be a faithful follower of Jesus, we've got to put our money where our mouth is. That's kind of the big idea of what we're talking about. Being a faithful follower of Jesus means surrendering every area of our lives. That's the big idea. But a secondary principle of that is that is that includes our wallets. That includes our finances. So with that in mind, let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 18 and look at Jesus' account with the rich young ruler. Starting in verse 18, it says this. And a ruler asked him, being Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he, being the rich young ruler, heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Then those who heard it, being upset by this, said, then who can be saved, Jesus? But he said to them, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So as we unpack this text tonight, we're going to see four different movements that weave this narrative together. We see a promising prospect, a daring declaration, a revealing requirement, and a timeless truth. So let's start with a promising prospect, this prospective follower of Christ. In Luke chapter 18, we pick up with Jesus still heading towards Jerusalem. His face is still set towards the cross. And a few months ago, we encountered a few potential disciples saying, I want to follow you. And he gave them a challenge. And now we have one more potential disciple saying the very same thing. And Jesus is going to point out to him, okay, you want to follow me? This is what it means to be a follower of, of me. He points out the cost of following him. But what do we know about this young man? What do we know about this guy who comes up to Jesus and starts asking these questions? Well, the authors of the gospel actually give us a lot of details about this character and about his conduct and about who he is. And there's four things that we can kind of see between this passage and the parallel passages in the gospel. And the first one is this. We know that this young man is extremely rich. That's not my words, that's what the passage says. It doesn't say that he's upper middle class. It doesn't say that he's a little well off. It says that he's extremely rich. To put that in modern lingo, he's not, you know, I drive a Mercedes rich. He's, I own my own private jet rich, okay? So this guy, he's got deep pockets. He's got a lot of money. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He's had enough money to get whatever he wants. Uh, a budget is a word that he has to laugh at because you don't need a budget when you got a credit card with no limit, right? That's, that's the lifestyle that this young man has been raised up in. He's extremely rich. And with all that wealth, also came power and prominence. And that's the second thing that we learn. He is a, he's a ruler. He's a ruler. He's a young ruler in the synagogue. He might even be part of the Sanhedrin council that governs the uh, nation at this time. And as a ruler, he is a VIP in society. 
right? He's part of the social elite. When he walks in, everyone kind of stops and pays homage and gives him the compliments, and everyone's trying to kind of suck up to him because he is the important guy in society. By world standards, he has it all. Wealth and power before the age of 30. This guy knows what he's doing. And for anybody, he would be the kind of recruit that you want for your team. It's kind of a no-brainer to get on Team Jesus. I mean, imagine what this guy could do for the kingdom. But then we see the third thing. Even though he had all this wealth, even though he had all this power, he wasn't corrupted by it. He's still spiritually sensitive. He, he's sensitive in a place where he has questions that he wants answered. Even by the question he asked Jesus, we learn something about him. He goes up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He realizes that this life is not all that there is. He's got a spiritual hunger and he, there's this reality that there's something that happens after I die. There's an eternity and I want to make sure that I'm prepared for it. I want to have eternal life. He's searching for answers. He's thirsty. He's a spiritual seeker. And then the fourth thing that we see, he recognizes rightly that there's something special about Jesus. Jesus is the man that has the answer to the question that he's asking. If there's anybody that knows how to inherit eternal life, it's Jesus because he's found it somehow. And if he found it, I want to find it too. So he approaches Jesus. And one of the other gospel accounts, we find out that he bows down and kneels before him and humbly asks Jesus for some spiritual advice. He asks Jesus for some spiritual advice. And Jesus, I love how Jesus first responds to this rich young ruler. Because the question that he asks Jesus, he, he asks a question, but notice what he calls Jesus when he talks to him. He says, good teacher. And Jesus' first response is to highlight the importance of what this young man just said. This young man called him the good teacher. And that doesn't seem like anything significant to us. But in the first century Jewish world, that would be significant. That title, good, and that attribute, good, it was reserved for one person. Reser reserved for God. And that's why Jesus flips it on him and he says, why do you call me good? Do you not know that God alone is good? And notice Jesus doesn't correct him and say, I'm not good. But Jesus is saying, you've just said something significant and I hope you realize the significance of what you're saying. You called me good and it's right because I am good. But the only reason I'm good is because I am God. I'm not an ordinary man who came to this world to give you a moral example to follow so you could somehow work your way up the ladder to earn your salvation as well. I'm God incarnate who came to be good because you could never be good enough on your own. So at first glance, this young man really is a promising prospect for Team Jesus. He's rich, he's powerful, he's spiritual, he's a somewhat moral guy. If anyone is humanly qualified to be a follower of Jesus, it's clearly this guy. But you know what? Jesus isn't impressed by our resume, is he? Jesus isn't impressed by the exterior. Jesus wasn't impressed by this man's pedigree, by his wealth, by his power. Because man looks on the outside, but what does God look at? God looks at the heart. God looks at the inside. And Jesus peers into this man's heart, and he sees there is crippling idolatry holding this man back from eternal life. But the problem is this young man's blind to his own sin and his own idolatry. And we even get a hint of that with the question that he asked Jesus. Know what he says. Well, look at what he says. 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? So give me the, give me the action steps. Give me the checklist. I've done so good. Just give, let me know what I have to do because I know I'm this close. If you just show me where the keys to unlocking heaven are, I can take them myself, unlock the door, and walk right in. I can do this, Jesus. Show me the way. Jesus responds to this young man's question with an important lesson. And his lesson is this, we can never do anything to inherit eternal life. There's nothing that we can ever do to be good enough to earn God's forgiveness and God's favor. Eternal life only comes through receiving and believing in Jesus. And since this rich young ruler was trusting in his own moral goodness as his acceptability before a holy God, what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He pulls out the Ten Commandments and points his attention back to there. And by pointing out the Ten Commandments, Jesus is trying to expose to this man, if eternal life is found from keeping the commandments, you're not having eternal life. You're not perfect. No one can keep God's commandments perfectly. Romans 3 tells us that. No one is good. No, not one. But this guy doesn't get it, does he? He falls hook, line, and seeker for it. Jesus pulls out five of the commandments and he says, you know the commandments, don't commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And what does this guy do? He makes a daring declaration. The second thing we see in our passage. Here's his daring declaration. I've done all of those perfectly since I was a kid. At this point, he's excited. He's patting himself on the back. He's like, that's it? To get eternal life? Follow the command? I did that. I'm good to go. I'm ready. He's, he's bragging and thinking, uh, he's essentially saying, I'm good, I'm righteous, I'm, I'm just like you, teacher. But you know what the problem was? He's just looking at the outside of his life. He's looking at the outside, he was looking at all his good works, he's looking at all his knowledge, he's looking at all the things that he had done, but he didn't see the sin, the idolatry, and the selfishness that dominated his heart. It reminds me of a couple that I was, I was reading their story a, a while back, and they were down in Florida, and they had saved up for years to buy their dream house right on the beach. Beautiful, big house, just totally remodeled. I mean, just, a, just an amazing, amazing property. They finally save up, make an offer, it gets accepted, they get their dream house, and, and they move in. Within six months, the house is being sold for pennies on the dollar for anyone who's actually willing to buy this house. Why? What happened? Well, because once they got in there, they started noticing something that was going on in one of their walls, and they took a sledgehammer and opened up the wall, and guess what they found? It was the worst infestation of termites they have ever seen in that area of the city. The entire foundation, the entire walls, everything was beyond repair, and the house was deemed unlivable, and it needed to be torn down. That's a lot how this young man is. He looks fantastic on the outside. He looks great. He looks awesome. He's got it all together. But Jesus sees what's going on in his heart, and it is death. It is corruption. It is decay, and it's going to tear him down. So Jesus decides to pick up the sledgehammer and go to work. He opens up the walls of this man's heart and exposes what's going on. And that's the third thing that we see, a revealing requirement. Notice how Jesus responds to this young man. He says, you know what? There's just one more thing that you lack. There's one more thing. He says this, all you have to do is follow me. That's all you have to do. And then he tells him what that looks like. 
follow me by selling all your stuff and distributing it to the poor. Cut ties with your former life. Get rid of that junk and follow me and you've got eternal life. Put your faith in me and follow me. What does the man respond with though? He's brokenhearted. He's upset. He's just had his expectations dashed. This young man understood that it would cost him everything. Jesus made it clear the requirement's simple. Follow me. But he understood that to follow Jesus also means that he had to forsake the idols. He had to love Jesus more than he loved his stuff. He had to love Jesus more than he loved comfort and wealth and possessions. Jesus was giving him a choose this day Joshua ultimatum. <laughs> you can choose me or you can choose the idols, but you can't have them both. The problem was this young man wanted the best of both worlds. He became extremely sad in that moment because he realized he couldn't get what he wanted. He wanted Jesus, but he also wanted his idols and his sin. And in that moment, he walked away sad and brokenhearted because he chose comfort over Christ. He chose to save his stuff over accepting a savior. And he chose to focus on this life rather than look ahead to eternity. He forfeited eternal life so that he could live it up here in this world. Jesus said he couldn't have both, so he chose. And he chose very foolishly. He chose to keep his idol of materialism. And by choosing this, he proved that he wasn't as good as he said he was. He didn't keep the law perfectly, did he? What's the very first commandment in God's law? You shall have no other gods before me. With his action, he showed that he wasn't good enough for God's forgiveness, but no one is. And as Jesus exposes this, the onlookers are shocked. This guy had such potential. This guy, he was a shoo-in to get God's favor. He was a shoo-in to be part of Team Jesus and be a follower. What, what is going on? And Jesus says, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the onlookers are so distraught, they broaden it out and say, well, who in the world can be saved then, Jesus? If this guy's not good enough, who is? And that's when he gives us a glimpse of hope. He says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And what he says is he's pointing out the fact, no one's good enough. You can't earn it. You can't do anything to inherit eternal life. He says, but what's impossible with man is possible with God because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins so that anyone who by faith trusts in him and follows him, they can have eternal life. So that's kind of the story tonight. That's the story of Jesus and the rich man. So what do we do with this? How do we apply it to our lives? Well, our first application is this. We need to ensure that we're trusting in the right things for our salvation. This young man thought that his goodness was going to get him into heaven. He thought God one day was going to pull out the scales between the good and the bad. His good was going to outweigh it, and he could stroll right on into the kingdom. And Jesus says, if you're trusting in your goodness, in your church attendance, in your good works, in anything else other than faithfully following me, putting your trust in me, he says, you are not going to inherit eternal life. You are going to inherit eternal punishment. We have to make sure that we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. Jesus plus nothing else, Christ alone. If you're trusting in anything else tonight, I, I beg you to learn from this example. 
And instead, choose Christ and put your trust in him. And just drop your moral resume, drop your pretenses of being good enough, and recognize you need a savior. But second, we need to realize that being a Christ follower means that we follow Jesus in every area of our lives, including in the area of our finances. When we become a Christ follower, all idols come out. We have to smash them all. They all get to be laid down there. We say, I choose Jesus over the idols. And that includes the area of finances. I want to focus in on that with the rest of our, our time this evening, the idol of finances. Because if we're being honest tonight, I think the American church has taken that reality and tried to mute it and pretend like Jesus doesn't say that. I think idolatry in the realm of materialism has been a respectable sin in the American church for far too long. And I know that I'm guilty of this myself. It's so easy to fall into that mindset because of the world and the culture that we find ourselves surrounded in, but that doesn't make it okay, and that doesn't make it right. Sadly, American Christianity, we're not speaking out against materialism, but in fact, a lot of American Christianity has embraced it. The people don't think that to follow Jesus means I'm sacrificing my stuff, I'm sacrificing my possessions, I'm sacrificing all these things to follow Jesus. A lot of people view Jesus as the financial genie, that they think if I follow him, I'm going to get more. I'm going to get all the things I want. He's going to bless me. I'm going to prosper. Prosperity gospel. I was reminded of this when I was at a pastor's conference a couple years ago, and there was this gospel choir singing, and they were, they were awesome. Like their music, their worship, it was jamming. I mean, it was great. And the one pastor I was standing beside, he's about an inch and a half taller than me, and he's probably 140 pounds, you know, soaking wet. He's just the scrawniest guy you'll ever see. And he's super stiff when this gospel choir is going on. And one of the ladies comes down, and they're like, they're just kind of like dancing around a little bit, and they grab him and pull him out in the aisle and make him like dance to this. It was hilarious. If you knew the guy, it was really funny. He was so uncomfortable, right? So it's just a great time. We're all singing together. And then, so I, I'm loving it, but then they go back up for their next song, and in their next song, there's a, a spot in it where it totally blends the gospel and prosperity together. And they go on this tangent where they say, you name it, you claim it. You want that car? God's going to give you that car if you have faith. You want that house? You name it, you claim it. And they, that was like the, the refrain of it. And they just named off all these things that they want. I just sat there so, so bothered and so sad because I thought, that is the total opposite of the gospel. The gospel is not about, I accept Jesus to get all of the stuff in this life I want. Jesus says, give up all the stuff in this life and your treasures in heaven and follow me. Man, how have we distorted that? And it's not right, and we have to get serious about it. We cannot call ourselves faithful followers of Jesus if we're allowing an idol of materialism to go on unconfronted in our hearts. Just listen to the warning that we see in two other passages of Scripture. Look, look at 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. It says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Right? Verses don't pull U-Hauls. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. 
For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. They fall into a snare. They fall into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kind of evil. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You, we, I, cannot serve both God and money. But how many of us are living like we can? How many of us are saying, yeah, I'm pursuing God with everything I got, but I'm definitely pursuing as much money as I can get to. And we live with the tension and we pretend like it's okay. Jesus says, we can't love God and money. You got to choose following me over materialism. And that's, that's the timeless principle. That's the timeless principle. We cannot serve Jesus and money. And tonight, I want to be super pastoral as I talk about this issue because it's hard. I, you know, those, them's fighting words when we start st- talking about what's going on in my wallet. Like, I don't like that. To talk about something else. Make me feel better, right? That's, that's kind of what's going on. But Jesus says, man, you're going to feel so much better if you could learn to sever your connection to this world through materialism and find your satisfaction in me. So let's be honest tonight about maybe, just, just maybe, just maybe, materialism has crept in and got a foothold of our hearts, okay? So here's some ways that I think it might have a foothold in our hearts, holding us back from following Jesus like he wants. First off is this. We need to realize that we're far richer than we think we are. We need to realize that we're far richer than we think we are. Okay. To be in the top 1% in the world of income, okay? What number do you think that would be what you have to make each year to be in the top 1%? Take, someone take a stab. What's that? A billion? Anyone else? Let's just try a million. How about this? Let's try 100,000. How about this? $33,000. If you make more than $33,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world. And that's factoring in purchasing power and all those types of things. So that's not, don't, don't think of it as like, oh, my money would go way further in another country. It's factoring in all those things. You're in the top 1% of the world if you make more than $33,000 a year. We use the word need a lot different than the Bible uses the word need. And that's one of the excuses we sometimes use to get out of being generous with our giving, right? I have so many things that I need. Well, remember what we just read in 1 Timothy 6. If we have food and clothing, with this we should be content. God makes it really clear what our needs are. Food in your belly, clothes on your back, place to sleep at night. That's it. Those are your needs. But how many other things do we throw into the need category? And I am so guilty of this myself. Megan and I purchased our first house about a year ago. And we love it. It's a cute little house. It's not huge. It's like 900 square feet probably. So, uh, but we loved it. We moved in. And after a while, you know what we started to say though? This will be a great house for the first couple years. But then once we start having some kids, we need a bigger house. Obviously, we're going to have to sell it. Oh, and it's so hard because we love this house, but we're going to need more space, right? It's an absolute need. Well, I got interested when I was prepping for this, and I decided to look at some statistics on home size, okay? And I know I'm such a nerd, right? In 1940, in 1940, 
the average U.S. house size was 3.7 people, okay? 3.7 people. The average home size square footage was 1,200 square feet, okay? In 2010, the average house size has shrunk to 2.6, so lost a whole person, and the average square footage is up to 2,400 for a house. So what does that mean? The average square foot of living space per person has increased 200% in those 70 years. So apparently in the 40s, they didn't need a bigger house, right? Apparently it's not a need, but it's really easy to fall into that mindset, isn't it? So we have to remember that so many times the words that we use as needs are being informed by our culture. Because our culture tells us, well, if you've got a family of five and you're living in a house that way, you guys are crazy. You guys are ridiculous. What are the neighbors going to say? They're going to think we're poor, <laughs> right? We, we, get, we get scared about what our culture tells us. Here's another one. Saying I'll give more when I make more is a lie. This statistic surprised me. People who make less than $20,000 a year are eight times more likely to give charitably than people who make over $75,000 a year. People who make over, so people who profess to be a churchgoer and make over $75,000 a year, one percent tithe. One percent tithe. Give 10% of their income stream there. It's easy to fall into the mindset that I'm, not, I'm a young adult. I don't make a ton right now. I'll give when I get more. I'll give when I'll pay my student debt off. I pay, I'll give when I pay my house off. But that's the problem of an idolatrous heart of greed. There's always something else you're giving. There's always going to be something that takes the place of giving to God. Don't put it off down the road and kick that can further down. You've got to start now. Giving never gets easier. And here's maybe a helpful analogy to kind of put that into perspective. Um, when I was in my freshman year of college, me and my friend were uh, just hanging out like a, a high school soccer game. And his dad came over, and he was kind of talking to his son for a little bit. And uh, I, asked, I asked my friend, I said, oh, what was that about? He's like, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. Well, later I found out his dad slipped him 50 bucks, okay? And his dad said to him, you need to take Andrew out to eat after the game. Here's 50 bucks on me. What do you think happened after the game? We set went our separate ways. I drove back to Cedarville. No mention of a free meal. I eat at McDonald's, and he goes off and buys like four burritos at Chipotle, okay? Guess who I bump into at McDonald's? His dad. Yeah. His dad comes up, and he says, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just buying him a quick meal. He's like, don't you mean you and Tyler? I was like, no, what are you talking about? And you should have seen his face. He was not happy. I think that's a good analogy of, of us, okay? God's our father, and he gives us money. He gives us stuff. He entrusts us to steward his finances well. And instead of giving it to our friends, instead of giving it to his causes, to his plan, his purposes, a lot of the times we just want to spend it all on ourselves. And just like my friend's father was rightly angry to see that his money was being mismanaged, God is rightly angry seeing that we're mismanaging his money as well. So what can we do? These are just some suggestions. I'm not saying these are, this is not legalistic. These are just some suggestions about how we could start being radical with our finances and take that next step in, in really glorifying God. So here's, here's the first one. Just start with being honest about what we're giving to God every, every month, okay? Most Christians, so Christ followers, 
the average percentage that they give each month is 2.5% of the rainfall. Imagine what this country and this world could look like if Christians reached down a little bit further in their wallets and gave more towards missions, gave more towards the church, gave more towards avenues that bring glory to God. 2.5%. I think we can do a little bit better than that. If you have a pet, you probably spend more than 2.5% of your income just on your pet, especially if they have to have a surgery, right? I mean, it's crazy. But I think we can give a little bit more than that. Another one is just realizing what the ultimate financial goal is in our life. This is another uh, survey done of Christians by Barna. The number one answer for Christians, 22% Christians, said their number one goal of finances was to provide for their family. Number two, to support the lifestyle I want. This is Christians. Number three, to meet my obligations and my needs. Number four, so I can be content. And then finally at number six, to serve God with my money. And that's Christians saying once I, the sixth priority is to serve God with my, my money. Here's an absolutely radical one that you may not like, but I'm going to pitch out there anyway. What if, what if, what if right now, especially us young adults, we said, you know what? For me to have food, have clothes, have a house, this is what I need to make a year. And pick that number. And then say, if God so happens to bless me above and beyond that, everything else I'm going to give away to missions, to the church, to God. There's people throughout history who have done that, but what if right now, before you know how much you're going to make, because it's a lot harder than you just say, I can live on 50, I can live on 60, whatever it is, and everything else. I don't care if I get a $2 million a year job. The rest is going to God. This is all we need. What if we did that? Well, I can tell you this. It's not going to be a wasted investment. The rich young ruler isn't happy about the decision that he made to cherish his idols instead of pursuing God. So that's a little bit of just what God's been laying on my heart with this passage. It's not, hard, it's not, it's not easy. It's a hard passage. That was a hard one to preach. God was kicking my butt all week, okay? This is not fun. Um, but I have one more thing. I, uh, I have Tony around here too. Tony, could you come up, on, come up on stage real quick? So Tony and I went to Ethiopia for the month of October. And while Tony was up there, he had the opportunity to, to kind of talk a little bit on this, on this subject a little bit. So, Tony, why don't you come up on stage, and uh, if you could just start off, could, could you just tell us, um, why, why did you go on that trip to Ethiopia to teach at the college? What, what was your subject? What were, what were you doing over there? Well, I think Andrew and I both kind of got our arms twisted to start, thinking it was a two-week endeavor, and it turned out to be a month. But it that was is a, true. It was a blessing. Story for another time. Yeah. Uh, yes, it is. But uh, <laughs> what was on my heart is just understanding um, a little more about that culture and really how little they have and what we focused on with financial stewardship, managing what God's blessed us with. And in a culture like that, it's so far different than what we have. Uh, we had to, well, both of us, we had to quickly change a lot of our curriculum because of a language barrier and so forth. But uh, we found that there were many things we could talk about. And uh, we used uh, this book actually, which is Your Money Counts by Howard Dayton, uh, which is Compass Ministries. Um, there's quite a few that we researched, but that was one that really uses kind of the lens of Scripture um, appropriately um, to get down to all the different things that God teaches us that we many times don't dig into. 
Now, Tony, if I'm remembering right, they kind of gave us an assessment of how much they were making a month. Do you remember what that number was? Yes, $72 U.S. per month per ministry family. So they're making $72 a month. And did our brothers and sisters in Christ, did we see them? Did, did, you, did they talk about giving and contributing and actually, giving to God's work? Actually, yeah. One of the many things that I did with them in my class was we went through budgeting. And it was amazing how many of them did tithe and tithed a minimum sometimes of 10%, sometimes more on $72 a month. Can you imagine that, U.S.? Um, it, was, it was really inspiring to see these folks in the families, the faith that they had, the focus, the priority, and uh, the contentment that they had. Um, and actually, I, I jotted down First uh, Timothy 6 that you shared, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's something we don't have here. And it's something that God's word teaches us through uh, scripture. And uh, this book, there's over 2,350 verses related to finances um, in God's word. And we dove into many of those in all the different subjects regarding counsel and honesty and generosity and um, just many, many things. And uh, it, was, it was a good time. Yeah. So is there any big application or takeaway or next steps maybe for some people that are interested about learning more? about finances and more about stewardship and what God has given us. Yeah, I guess what's on my heart, and Andrew knows this because we chatted about it a little bit, last year at Highland we did our first class with this, and we actually had 30-some people in it, and they're without names and specifics. Um, a good 25, 30% of them were really, really blessed uh, by changes that they were able to make, understanding from a scriptural base. Um, and, and I did that prior to that. It's not like I knew this all my life, and I, we all struggle uh, regularly with prioritizing appropriately, but I guess my heart is um, getting more of us um, into the word, looking uh, through a framework that we can apply to our lives on a real practical basis so that we can, you know, young and old, use uh, his tools he's given us as guidance. Um, and all we can do is manage ourselves and our families to help you know, some of the ills in our country, and I think this is a really good place to start. So, so I know it's on Tony's heart to uh, even do another one of those classes. So if that's something that's God leading you, God's leading you to do, that, that would be great. At yeah, some, right, I, at some I point told Andrew, I mean, yeah. I, could, I typed up a little uh, sign-up sheet. If any of you have a desire to do that, we could start to figure out if we have a dozen, half dozen, 20, whatever. I have, I think we had like 20 books left because we so, ordered yeah. quite a few boxes. We could, you know, probably donate to young adults what we had left from our trip and uh, start a group and figure out a schedule that works. So, yeah, if any of you feel led to uh, and interested in that, you know, I'll leave it. So maybe we can have that sign-up sheet over by the coffee bar if anybody's interested in writing their names down for that. Yeah, Sounds good. Great. Thanks, Tony. Yeah, thank Thanks. you. Yeah, and the reason I just wanted to talk about a little bit of our experience in Ethiopia was the reality of our brothers and sisters in Christ halfway across the world who are making $72 a month can give and give generously to support God's causes, we don't have an excuse. So tonight, let's really think about that and think about supporting, supporting God's, God's work a little bit more with our finances, letting him be Lord of every area of our lives, including our wallets. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer as we continue worship. Father, we thank you for the conviction and the challenge in this passage of Scripture, but also the grace and the hope. Because in this passage, we're challenged to give everything up to follow Christ. But we're also reminded that all we have to do is put our faith in Christ to have eternal life. You didn't have to earn it. 
There's nothing we could do to earn your grace or your forgiveness. All has been given to us through Christ. And God, as people who want to be faithful followers and not fair-weather fans, one of the most radical ways that we can stand out in our culture is getting real about supporting your mission to see people saved and redeemed from our community, from our country, but from the entire world. And one of the ways that we can do that very easily is by giving of ourselves and fighting and fight, fighting back against this idol of materialism in our hearts. It robs us of joy. It robs us of intimacy with you. And Father, we pray tonight that you just break it down. We love you, God. We pray that you continue to speak to us now. And we lift all these things up through the powerful name of Jesus alone. Amen.